I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who are the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 73, 50,000 to 10,000 BC. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm doing Fun of History now as the lone host, but I have the help of Shane Soresby, who has written an excellent script for this episode. Before we head back to 50,000 BC, uh, we have some comments from David G, who says, Great video. I think the Toba eruption is a fascinating event. Maybe the biggest eruption in the last 25 million years. And he says video because uh, Fan of History is also published on the Fan of History YouTube channel that you should check out. There are some other stuff there as well. Uh, so I answered him. I said, uh, what happened 25 million years ago? And he said that La Garita Caldera erupted. 25 million years ago and uh, that got me interested like how big are these catastrophes and one measure of how big a catastrophe is is how much stuff ends up in the atmosphere because of this eruption so uh, if you look at the Tsar Bomba the biggest hydrogen bomb ever detonated by the Soviet Union it produced one cubic kilometer of stuff in the atmosphere. Uh, in comparison, the KT event, the rock that destroyed the dinosaurs, it uh, resulted in two million cubic uh, kilometers of stuff in the atmosphere. So KT event is on one end of the scale at two million cubic kilometers of stuff. And the Tsar Bomba is on the other end of the scale with one cubic kilometer stuff. Still a huge um, explosion. So if we look at these things, 
the Toba eruption, the thing we talked about last week, the catastrophe that happened about 75,000 years ago, it produced 2,800 cubic kilometers of stuff. That means it was 2,800 times bigger than the biggest hydrogen bomb ever detonated. La Garita Caldera, the 25 million years ago event, it was 5,000 cubic kilometers. So it was twice the size of the Toba eruption. That means that when the, if that would have happened while we were around, we would all have died. Or would we? Uh, we know that thousand people survived about the Toba eruption but uh, if you look at Yellowstone's latest eruption was two million years ago it was about the same size as Toba eruption 2500 cubic kilometers of stuff that was just some interesting fact I find I got another comment by scruffy looking nerf herder who says a pleasant surprise to get some prehistory I'm currently playing Far Cry Primal as a caveman set in 10,000 BC. So I will listen to this as I explore. And now you will get the chance, scruffy looking nerf further, because we are heading straight to 10,000 BC. But we'll start at 50,000 BC. And that means we have now reached the start of the Upper Paleolithic, the third and last subdivision of the Old Stone Age in Europe. Africa and Asia. This dates to between 50,000 and 10,000 BC, culminating in the appearance of behavioral modernity in humans before the coming of agriculture. At the beginning of this period in North Africa, the climate began to change with an extended wet period of 20,000 years known as the Mausterian Pluvial. God, I love these names. You're going to hear me butcher them. I'm sorry, English is not my native language, but I'm trying. The current desert areas of Africa today were well watered with lakes, swamps and river systems that contain grassland and woodland environments with animals such as gazelle, giraffe, ostriches, lions, jackals, hippos and crocodiles. The system was caused by climate changes during the last ice age with the advancement of the ice sheets in North America and Europe, Arctic tundra conditions in more temperate zones and rain bands heading further south into northern Africa. Following on from the end of the last episode, humans had begun to make their journey out of Africa following the setback caused by the Toba eruption. Moving eastwards, generation by generation, around the coasts of Arabia, Iran, Pakistan and India, they reached the area of Southeast Asia by 50,000 BC. During this time, sea level was much lower than today, with most of Southeast Asia locked together as one landmass known as Sunda. One migration group continued along the coast until it reached the straits, separating Zunda from another landmass consisting of New Guinea and Australia called Sahul. Using either primitive rafts or dugout canoes, they crossed the short stretch of open water in 45,000 BC, possibly at its widest point of 90 kilometers to reach Sahul. Unlike Homo erectus, who never reached Australia, although they reached the island of Flores, this was proof that Homo sapiens had begun to develop seafaring skills. Evidence shows that uh, the megafauna that weighed over 100 kilos became extinct around this time, suggesting that uh, we, 
The new settlers were responsible for this extinction. In 40,000 BC, there was evidence of human activity at Lake Mungu, a central feature of Mungu National Park situated in southwestern New South Wales, 760 kilometers west of Sydney. The site contains stone tools as well as remains of a male and female known as Mungo Man and Mungo Lady. Mungo Man was discovered on the 26th of February 1974 by Dr. Jim Bowler, covered in red ochre in what was deemed to be the earliest incidence of such practice by Homo sapiens. On the other hand, Mungo Lady which was also discovered by Dr. Bowler five years earlier in 1969, was found to be partially cremated with the rest of the bones being crushed. Therefore, she is the earliest Homo sapiens to be cremated anywhere in the world. The dates are problematic as the site itself has been dated to around 60,000 BC, and if the fossils are dated to around that date, instead of 40,000 BC, it would be that of archaic Homo sapiens, those first adventures that were mentioned in episode 1 that were supposedly hit hard by the Toba eruption. In 30,000 BC, our Australian group had now reached what is today southern, the southern coast of Australia in the state of Victoria in 30,000 BC. Normally, that would be the end of the road, and today you would have to cross the Bass Strait if you want to go further south. But again, due to the effects of the Ice Age, our intrepid group could travel by land bridge to what is now the island of Tasmania. In 1990, archaeologists excavated material in a cave in the Maxwell River Valley of southwest Tasmania that proved aboriginal occupation at that time period, making it the most southerly occupied population in the world during the Upper Paleolithic. Tasmania was separated from Australia in 8000 BC when the sea rose to form the Bass Strait. Elsewhere, following a split from the Sahul group, our southeastern group continued eastwards, settling around the coasts of Sunda, before turning northeastward to reach China in 40,000 BC. It then became necessary to travel inland, leading to contact with existing groups of Homo erectus. Unfortunately for Homo erectus, we were much more technologically advanced than them, and whether by our own hands or not, Homo erectus would soon die out on the mainland continent of Asia. However, complications arise in regards to Homo erectus, as fossils dated to 38,000 BC were discovered on the island of Flores in Indonesia in 2003. 2003, by a joint Australian-Indonesia team of archaeologists. Originally looking for evidence of the migration from Asia to Australia, they recovered a nearly complete skeleton of a hominid at Liang Bua Cave, alongside seven other skeletons dated between 38,000 BC and 13,000 BC, measuring only three feet tall Homo florensiensis, otherwise known as the Hobbit, was unveiled on 28th of October of 2004 and was initially placed in its own genus before it was entered into the Homo genus. It seemed to represent either extremely small forms of Homo erectus or descendants of even earlier hominids. Back on the mainland, 
descendants of our southeastern group continued to move northeast along the coast of China until they reached the area of modern-day North and South Korea. At the end of South Korea today, you would have to cross the Korea Strait to reach our next destination. But in 35,000 BC, you could walk across another land bridge caused by low sea levels to enter into the land of the rising sun, otherwise known as Japan. These Paleolithic hunters would be unique though, as they would produce the earliest known ground stone tools and polished stone tools anywhere in the world, a technology normally known in the Neolithic period 25,000 years later. It is not known why this happened early in Japan, but the climate was starting to get warmer worldwide, and various islands around Japan could have benefited from this startling innovation. The oldest skeletons found of these people, known as Minatagova Man, dated between 16,000 and 14,000 BC. And they were buried inside a vertical fissure in the limestone rock situated at Minatogawa limestone quarry. Between five and nine individuals were found with a height of 155 meters for males and 1.4 meters for females that had worn out teeth suggesting an abrasive diet. The Yomon period, 14,000 BC to 300 BC, was the time when Japan was inhabited by a hunter-gatherer culture that had a degree of sedentism and complexity. Still linked to Korea by a land bridge, the earliest incipient Yomon period was characterized by the production of the world's earliest pottery. Cord marking that gives the culture its name has been found on numerous pottery fragments at a number of sites in Japan, including those found in the Kanto Plain in eastern Honshu, where Tokyo is now located. Although pottery is normally associated with agriculture and sedentary lifestyles, these people were coastal and deep water fishermen using small round bowls used for either eating or storing food. Shipped and ground stone tools, traps and bows were also produced by the Yomon people. At the end of the incipient Yomon period, 8000 BC, rising sea levels cut off the link between Japan and Korea, although intermittent contact was maintained, even though the Yomon people were free to develop their own ideas and ways. So we have covered the journey from Africa to Asia and Australia. But what about the rest of the world? Europe is thought to have been colonized by northwest-bound migrants from Central Asia and the Middle East as an adaption to big-game hunting in subglacial steppe fauna. The earliest evidence for the settlement of modern humans was to be found at Grotta del Cavallo in Apulia, southern Italy. Two baby teeth found in the cave in 1964 were dated to 45,000 BC, confirming that humans swept across Europe from a number of different routes. Another discovery of a piece of upper jaw at Kent's Cavern in Torquay, Devon, southwest England, was estimated in 2011 to be dated between 44,200 BC and 41,500 BC, making it the earliest anatomically modern human fossil yet discovered in northwest Europe. Both of the results from 
Italy and England fit in well with stone tool discoveries that suggested that humans were in Europe by 40,000 BC. It, it also confirms that these humans had come into contact with the existing Neanderthal species that had occupied Europe and Western Asia since 300,000 BC. As well as making contacts with Neanderthals, evidence from DNA analysis of a finger bone found at Denisova Cave, Siberia in Russia, revealed genetic material distinct from both humans and Neanderthals, dated to approximately 40,000 BC. Mitochondrial DNA analysis of these hominids, known as Denisovans, suggested that this new species came about as a result of an earlier migration out of Africa that occurred after Homo erectus but before Homo sapiens. A complex picture from the late Pleistocene suggested that the Denisovans branched off the human lineage 600,000 years ago as a sister group to the Neanderthals before diverging away from them in the Middle East 200,000 years later. According to Svante Pebo, researcher of Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany, Denisovans interbred with the newcomers from Central Asia who had arrived following the separation from the South Asia, Asia, East Asia migration. Evidence from the finger bone from Siberia suggested that humans who live in Melanesia in the South Pacific today are most likely to have 6% Denisovan DNA with further traces found in Australian Aboriginal, Aborigines and those who live in the islands of Southeast Asia. Evidence also suggests that Denisovans and humans crossed paths in Central Asia before humans went on to colonize the islands of Oceania. But hang on, yet today's residents of mainland Asia do not seem to possess any traces whatsoever of Denisovan DNA, so the jury is still out, we don't know. So humans have now reached and started to colonize Europe, and you know our behavioral ability to do things is not just going to be restricted to copying what the Neanderthals are doing with their Mausterian culture. It is time to do something a little bit different, maybe a little bit more creative with our hands, and with the Aurignacian culture we are going to do exactly that. Originally located in Bulgaria and Hungary in 38,000 BC, this culture would spread to the rest of Europe by 35,000 BC. The main tool industry is characterized by worked bone or antler points with grooves cut in the bottom. Flint tools included fine blades and bladelets from prepared stone cores rather than the pre-existing crude flakes. K-paintings were made at Chauvet in southern France, pendants, bracelets and ivory beads were produced, and the oldest figurative art known as the Venus of Hollefels was produced in a cave at Schelklingen in Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany, as well as the oldest bone flute made from a vulture's wing bone containing five finger holes elsewhere. 
at Goat's Hole Cave on the Gower Peninsula in South Wales in 1822, Reverend William Buckland discovered one of the oldest ceremonial burials of a modern human anywhere in Western Europe. Known as the Red Lady of Paviland, it was falsely believed to be the remains of a Roman prostitute, but the bones were later analyzed as a young male adult, so everything wrong, dated to 31,000 BC. This skeleton was covered in red ochre and was buried alongside bones of a mammoth. Although the cave is situated on the coast, at the time of the burial, the cave would have been situated 70 miles inland when sea levels were much lower due to the most recent glacial period, known in Britain as the Devensian Glaciation. The climate would have been like modern-day Siberia. Analysis indicates that the lady lived on a diet of fish supplemented by mammoth, woolly rhino and reindeer. These people were semi-nomadic with the tribe possibly transporting the body from a coastal region to the inland cave for burial. The next culture to emerge following the Aurignacian was the Gravettian culture in 29,000 BC. Originally developed in the Don River Valley of the Ukraine, these big game hunters lived in large skin tents constructed over a framework of mammoth bones as a substitute for the lack of wood on the treeless steps. Spreading into Central Europe from 27,000 BC, they used small pointed blades that were used to hunt bison, horse, reindeer and mammoth with small nets being used to hunt much smaller game. Hundreds of Venus figurines were produced, including the famous Venus of Willendorf, located in Lower Austria. Made of olitic limestone and covered in red ochre, the purpose of this figurine with its exaggerated features remain a mystery. Researchers suggested that it was used to worship a mother goddess in the aid of fertility and childbirth. As well as the figurines, complex structures and burials, large amounts of shell jewelry and sculpted bone and antler were also found at Gravettian sites. Now, what about the Neanderthals? Well, things are going to be coming to an end for them. Modern humans lived together with Neanderthals until at least 28,000 BC, but how and why the Neanderthals died remains the most intensely debated topic in archaeology. With little evidence of violent interactions between them, early humans may have outcompeted them for food and resources in the rapidly changing environment. Exchange of resources and information by modern human language and flexible technologies made human better. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Suited to withstand climatic downturns than the Neanderthals. Therefore, a combination of environmental conditions and increased competition is the likely explanation for the extinction of the Neanderthals, with the last of them being located on the tip of southern Spain. Humans were now the only homo species left on the planet. Humans tend to always complain when the weather gets cold during autumn and winter, but that is a mere drop in the ocean compared to what our ancestors had to endure in 20,000 BC. The last glacial maximum was a period where much of our world was cold, dry and inhospitable. The worst affected area was northern Europe, which was totally covered in ice caps and glaciers as far south as Germany. And Poland. For 3,000 years this area of Europe was inhospitable. So any remaining people had to seek refuge in the more marginal areas south of the ice sheet. One such refugee area was uh, southwest France where the Sulutrian culture emerged in 22,000 BC. To survive the harsh conditions, much time and effort was invested in hunting horses, reindeer, mammoth, cave lions, rhinos, bears and aurochs using advanced tool making to produce beautiful bifacial points known as leaf points. The Solutrians also used finely worked bone needles to produce sophisticated clothing to keep them warm during this harsh period of time akin to modern-day Inuit in the Arctic. The culture is named after the site of Sulutre, discovered in 1866 by geologist and paleontologist Henry Testot-Ferry, subsequently named later by Gabriel de Mortillet. Now, there is a Sulutrean hypothesis theory in North American archaeology. It goes that sometime in approximately 19,000 BC, hardy bands of hunters with solitary and tool-making technology crossed the Ice Age North Atlantic in canoes following the edge of the ice sheet using survival skills like the aforementioned Eskimos to reach northeastern North America. As the forerunner to the later Clovis culture, due to similarities in the production of bifacial points. This is way before the Vikings and Columbus, I'll tell you that much. However, this has been discredited by most archaeologists on the basis that there was a large gap in time between the two cultures. There is lack of evidence of Solutrean seafaring, lack of specific Solutrean features and tools in Clovis technology, and difficulties in the route getting there. 
more on the Clovis culture later on in this very episode. By 17,000 BC, the use of bone and ivory implements from the Solitrean period began to increase, leading to the production of spear points, harpoons, hooks and needles. Discovered at La Madeleine, a rock shelter in the Dordogne region of France in 1875, the Magdalenian culture became synonymous with reindeer hunters towards the end of the last ice age. From its roots in southwestern France, the culture spread across Europe from Portugal to Poland due to a rise in temperature following the end of the last glacial maximum. With the ice sheets retreating back north, evidence of the hunting of red deer, horses and other large mammals began to be present in Europe towards the end of the last ice age. Look at the horses here. We talked about them plenty of times, but they are, they are just food at this point. However, it is the cave paintings of Lascaux in France and Altimira in Spain that the Magdalenian culture is most famous for. Discovered on the 12th of September of 1940, the cave at Lascaux contains 2,000 paintings of animals, humans and abstract figures, the most famous being the Great Hall of the Bulls that depict equines, bulls and stags. There are many theories about what these paintings mean and why they were produced. As most represent animals, it may represent magical means of a successful hunt or provide information about the best way to hunt different species. The more abstract art and inaccessibility of some of the cave art may also suggest ritual activity performed by shamans or an initiation ceremony. Others suggest the paintings may have established group territories as populations were increasing and competition for rich resources may have intensified. All those paintings and hunting reindeer was all well and good, but for all this time in history since our sojourn out of Africa, we have had to do things on our own. Maybe it is time we had a companion. In late Magdalenian times, we have evidence of the first domesticated dog buried alongside humans at an upper Paleolithic site in Russia in approximately 15,000 BC. Although wild dogs had been around humans for some considerable time before then after being developed from wolves, DNA evidence in 2013 identified this as Canis lupus familiaris, Man's best friend, the dog. In 12,000 BC, the Magdalenian culture came to an end and was superseded by the Asilian culture in southwestern France and northern Spain. This was a period known as the Alröd Oscillation, a warm and moist interstadial that occurred at the end of the last glacial period. Due to the warming climate in the northern Atlantic region and diminishing food supply, tools and arts were much cruder than previously with microliths containing rounded retained backs, flat boon harpoons and pebbles with abstract design. In northern Europe, the Federmesser culture emerged from Poland to northern France between 12,000 BC and 10,800 BC using small flint blades in which its name meaning feather knife derives from. After that, 
the Ahrensburg culture would come into Europe, which we will cover in the next episode. In the UK, the late Magdalenian British culture with similar characteristics to the Asilian culture would emerge at a site in Nottinghamshire known as Cresswell Crags. Known as the Cresswellian culture, the cave site was occupied between 11,000 and 9,800 BC, containing blade points known as cheddar points. End scrapers made from long straight blades, Baltic amber, mammoth ivory, and animal teeth and bone. They were used to make harpoons, awls, beads, and needles. Until the 21st century, the only artwork found from the cave was the etching of a horse head on a 2-3 inch long rib bone. However, three archaeologists later discovered inside church hole that Britain had its own Paleolithic cave art. Although hard to spot with the naked eye, as many as 90 engravings have been found containing animals and birds such as stags, uh, bison and ibises. These engravings were produced in the most inaccessible places and we can only speculate as to whom the engravings were for and why they were produced. A similar site known as Guff's Cave in Cheddar, Somerset contained the carving of a mammoth dated to 11,000 BC and skull fragments of 5 to 7 individuals. In 2010, further human bones were examined which were dated to 12,700 BC. Right, let us turn back the clock and head away from Europe into Northeast Asia. Residing in Siberia since 35,000 BC, our ancestors continued to move northeast until they reached the area of today's Cape Dashneva. Due to the Wisconsin glaciation, humans were able to cross the Bering Land Bridge until they reached Alaska in North America. The dates of this migration are highly controversial, and I mean highly controversial, ranging from 16,500 BC to 40,000 BC whenever they made this migration or series of migration, an obstacle will soon get in the way of further progress south. The Laurentide Ice Sheet covered millions of square miles of most of Canada and the northern United States between 95,000 and 20,000 years ago. The western end of this ice sheet merged with the Cordilleran ice sheet that covered 2.5 million square kilometers of western Canada and northwest United States. Once the last glacial maximum had ended and temperatures began to rise. An ice-free corridor started to emerge between the two ice sheets, allowing humans to move further south into the Midwest and eastern United States. However, there is a possibility that humans reached the first settlement at Cactus Hill in Virginia before the ice-free corridor opened, dated to between 18,000 and 16,000 BC. Various theories on how they got there and during the Wisconsin glaciation suggest that they might have used primitive boats to skirt the glacier along the Pacific coast, crossed along the edge of the North Atlantic pack ice from northern France, Solutrean hypothesis, or braved the open ocean, crossing either the Central Atlantic or the Pacific. These theories are difficult to prove because the related coastal settlements have now been submerged by the rise in sea levels following the end of the Wisconsin glaciation. 
another site associated with these first humans in North America is to be found at Meadowcroft Rock Shelter in Pennsylvania. Meadowcroft Rock Shelter is a natural formation below an overhanging cliff that has yielded pre-Clovis remains found 11.5 feet underground, including tools such as bifaces, bifacial fragments, lamellar blades, proital points and shipping debris. People use these tools to hunt smaller game animals and to harvest wild varieties of corn, squash, fruits, nuts and seeds. Like Cactus Hill, there is a controversy over the dates of the beginning of the settlement ranging anywhere from 14,000 BC to 17,000 BC. Towards the end of the last glacial period, a prehistoric Paleo-Indian culture known as the Clovis culture appeared in North America between 11,200 BC and 10,900 BC, named after distinct stone tools found at Clovis in New Mexico in the 1920s and the 1930s. These people, who are deemed to be the ancestors of most indigenous people living in North America today, were characterized by the manufacture of Clovis points. The projectile points were created by using bifacial percussion flaking, with each face being flaked on both edges and were used to predominantly hunt mammoths. Clovis sites have been found across most of the United States, Mexico and Central America, and even perhaps northern South America. The only example of a human burial associated with the Clovis culture is from the remains of an infant boy named Ansik I, found in western Montana, United States, dated to between 10,707 and 10,556 BC. DNA genome analysis provided proof that the Clovis people came originally from Siberia via the Bering Land Bridge, discrediting the Solutrean hypothesis. The Clovis culture would come to an end when a cold period known as the Younger Dryas would have an impact on the world at large, but more on that in our next episode. Now, if we go back to the theory that humans used primitive boats to travel down the Pacific coast, these people may have arrived in South America by 13,000 BC. Evidence of this can be found at a site known as Monteverde, situated in southern Chile. Dated to 12,800 BC, Monteverde was discovered by a veterinary student in late 1975 that contained evidence of a 20-foot-long tent-like structure of wood and animal hides with occupation of 20 to 30 people. Each of the living quarters had a clay-lined brassiere surrounded by stone tools with remains of seeds, nuts and berries. There is also evidence that these people harvested a wild variety of potato. A human footprint from a child was found in the clay and a chunk of meat that had preserved DNA was found inside the camp and it matched that of a mastodon. One site that would complement Cap- uh, Monteverde was uh, Pilauco Bio, dated to 10,500 to 9,000 BC that would be used as a hunting and scavenging site. Finally, let us head to the Middle East. An archaeological site 10 kilometers northeast of Beirut uh, in Lebanon 
at Kassar Akil contained a rock shelter below a steep limestone cliff. First notice in 1900, further excavations was made in 1926, 1937-38, 1947-48 and 1969-75. And they showed one of the longest sequences of Paleolithic flint industries ever found in the Middle East. A complete skeleton of an eight-year-old human known as Egbert was discovered 38 feet below ground level, cemented into breccia. Believed to be one of the earliest known sites containing upper Paleolithic technologies, artifacts recovered include Kassar Akil flakes, along with shells and chipped edges that were suggested to have been used as pendants or beads. The earliest uses of personal adornment in Western Eurasia. Radiocarbon dating indicated that humans lived on the site in approximately 45,000 BC. In approximately 30,000 BC, this was superseded by the Emire culture that kept most of the elements from the previous culture with curved knives being used similar to early cultures of Western Europe. The Antilian culture, 30,000 to 18,000 BC, evolved from the Emire culture, innovating some elements of Aurignacian culture, such as burins and narrow blade points. Between 1800 and 18,000, sorry, and 12,500 BC, the Kebaran culture, named after the Kebara cave, in Haifa, Israel, were highly nomadic people who used microlithic tools, collected wild cereals, and lived in upland areas during the summer and caves, rock shelters near lowland lakes in the winter. However, things start to look really interesting after the Kebaran culture. The Natufian culture was an epipaleotic culture located in the Levant between 12,500 and 9,500 BC. What was unusual was that despite hunting deer, aurochs, wild boars and harvesting wild cereals, these people lived a more sedentary or semi-sedentary lifestyle in woodland settlements. High mountains of Lebanon, steppe areas of Israel and the Sinai and desert areas of Syro-Arabian desert were not suited to the Natufian people due to low carrying capacity and other foragers who exploited the area. Habitations consisted of circular semi-subterranean brushwood structures with a dry stone foundation with a diameter of 3 to 6 meters containing a central round fireplace. Settlements ranged in size from 15 to 1,000 square meters. But traces of rebuilding suggested temporary abandonment of settlements at various points. Short blades and bladelets were used alongside geometric microliths. But it was the introduction of sickle blades that made things rather intriguing. These sickle blades were shown to have been used to cut stems of wild cereals, which suggested that these people were possibly the ancestors of the first Neolithic settlers of the region, with evidence of the cultivation of rye at Tel Abu Hureira, site of the earliest evidence of agriculture in the world. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, because now we have reached 10,000 BC. And in the next episode, we'll be looking at possibly the most important innovation to have hit mankind ever since our first ancestors climbed out of the trees millions of years ago. Why go to all that effort to source wild sources of food when you can just pick up some seeds, 
plant them in the ground and do it yourself. Sure, it is backbreaking work and there is a possibility of failure, drought and famine, but it can be richly rewarding if it succeeds. In fact, if you have a big surplus, you can store food for the next year and maybe start to do other innovative things. So sit back as we await the arrival of agriculture and the Neolithic period in the next episode. And that was today's story. I do need some help with this podcast. As I said last time, this is my favorite podcast. All the podcasts I make, some of my other podcasts are being very successful. This is not. I need the following things. I need sponsors. If you like this podcast, please support it. I am not charging any patrons at patreon.com slash fanofhistory. While we do these prehistory episodes, they are free. But in order to continue doing great episodes when we're done with them, I need your support. And the best way to show that support is to go to patreon.com slash fanofhistory. I also need scripts. If you feel that I should talk about a certain historical subject, why not write a script for me? And I will. The podcast is named Fan of History. For a reason, I wanted to cover different periods of history, which we're now doing. But I am not a stranger to covering other things. But I do need scripts. I don't have the time to write scripts for a podcast that it uh, gives me $11 per episode. While other podcasts are doing $500. So, uh, I also need a co-host. If you feel that you are the perfect co-host for this podcast, please contact me. Thank you for listening to Fan of History. And I'll be back. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 